0: Hi, I'm Anna, and I'm a youth organizer who teaches sex ed.
1: And I'm Antonia, and I'm a doula.
0: We're here to share unfiltered information about self-managed abortion, otherwise known as SMA. We've interviewed people with wide-ranging perspectives on the medical, legal, technological, and personal questions that arise within SMA. We've built a chorus of voices that demystifies SMA in a platform that people already have as a part of their daily routines. We're not here to tell you what to do or to advocate for SMA, but rather to share stories.
1: On this episode today, we are chatting with Katie, and Katie is in quotation marks here. She is many things. She's an expert in privacy and security and online organizing for abortion access. She is also the founding member of the Mountain Access Brigade, which is an all-volunteer grassroots abortion support group based in East Tennessee and Appalachia in the USA. The work that the this doula,
0: digital doula collective is doing in Appalachia to connect abortion seekers to the care that they need is so crafty and salty and creative and even just like the words themselves like i'm just going to read the description from their autonomous pelvic care workshop where uh they explain that all of your trainers are trans and queer and the workshop will reflect a range of pelvic in parentheses, Reproductive Generative Support Services. This is a space for queer and trans folks in all bodies, but the workshop focus is centered on services for people with uterine systems. Join us to learn about menstrual support and regulation, herbal remedies for common vaginal complaints, self-managed abortion, how to safely offer radical pelvic care in the home-based setting, and more. So they are uh, really kind of merging traditional and ancient care with modern communication technologies and mm-hmm. modern strategizing around organizing and, uh, and just like the actual tech itself. I mean, we're talking about 3d printing specula, like it's, it's bringing new tech to old forms of reproductive health care And, uh, their approach is not only super inclusive, but deeply thoughtful and not something I've encountered before. Plus, gynepunk is a term in it that has just given my life a lot of juice. Yeah. The resources
1: page for this episode is going to be really a whole lot of fun on our website because yeah, absolutely affirm what you just said. She and what they are doing um, I think is truly a pioneering method of, of establishing safety and, and security and true comprehensive emotional and psychological care and that it can happen remotely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have been following y'all for, for a while and it's super to be able to have this conversation right now. So thank you for making the time. Uh, I was hoping we could start by you sharing a little bit about your background and about your work currently.
2: Sure. So Mountain Access Brigade is an all-volunteer organization that's based in Tennessee and serves um, central Appalachia. We're all known as Katie. Um, and we provide some wraparound remote, um, support services for people. So we call it like a digital abortion doula. And, um, I sort of came to this work because I'm really interested in grassroots and community based movements, especially movements that are focused on putting provision of healthcare and knowledge of healthcare back into the hands of those who are the most affected by what we call the white supremacist biomedical patriarchy. Um, so it's a lot of like word salad, but it's some mm-hmm. in part what some people might refer to as like decolonizing um, public or reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. Um, so I volunteer with an organization that's primarily white. We don't really use... Uh, the language of decolonization but we think about health justice and about autonomy and I have a background in reproductive health care provision and sex education and menstrual stigma so the obvious conclusion for many people who receive training in similar fields is to understand that we can access the skills and we have the necessary tools and learning to perform many standard procedures on ourselves that were once only done by doctors or nurses. Um, and I think that also extends to wanting to help people access abortion care, whatever that might look like for themselves and their lives and, and their geography. So um, that's kind of where I'm centered in this work and, and the, the way that the uh, organization that I'm involved with mm. um, sort of meets the challenge of, of our current situation.
1: Yeah do you remember when you first learned about what an abortion was?
2: (laughs) So I first remember hearing the term abortion because my parents were incensed that my brother's kindergarten or maybe first grade teacher had mentioned abortion in class. And I must have been maybe seven. And both of my folks were Christian conservatives and we lived in a Southern state. So this was like a big time scandal. Um, And I remember them talking about it in the car I don't think they really explained what it was, um, but by the time I was a teenager, I was really causing issues with both of them by being pretty vocally pro-choice, even though that's not a term I would use now. That's that's kind of what the dynamic was in our family. I had a pink bumper sticker that I put on my car, and it said, against abortion, don't have one, which I actually now think is a pretty mild summation of my views. Yeah. <laughs> I've certainly said things that are way more radical, but yeah. my dad was furious. I like was not allowed to have this bumper sticker on my car. And so, while I think there wasn't necessarily a specific moment that galvanized me to do this work. I definitely grew up in an environment where this sort of in, like collective idea of reproductive autonomy an abortion was forbidden to me. And so mm. that's a fantastic way to make someone into a lifelong abortion <laughs> advocate.
1: <laughs> you mentioned at one point that you got into gynepunk. punk. Is that right? And then can you describe what that is?
2: Sure. So going back to the idea that we are now doing a lot of things to ourselves and on ourselves and with our bodies that were once the, the purview of doctors or nurses. So for example, at-home pregnancy tests in the 1970s caused this huge stir because the idea that people could be trusted to determine their own pregnancies was really radical. And so today we can kind of extrapolate that to groups like the gyno punk movement, which is in, in Spain and in parts of Europe and in, in the States now as well, groups that are like printing their 3D printing their own speculums, mm-hmm. they're bringing back the idea of looking at cervical and vaginal fluid under microscopes to determine infection Mm. they might be performing menstrual management and miscarriage support and things like that so that's sort of a in general it's like a movement that combines modern technology and traditional botanical medicines and I find that really powerful
1: Mm. did you have like a guide or a mentor or someone who just kind of opened the door for you or were there just series of little doors that you weaseled through
2: Without getting too specific, I would say that I've definitely um, benefited from the privilege of a lot of education around this, both formal and informal, mm-hmm. some of it in kind of an apprentice mode, other education taking place in a classroom or hands-on training at various um, healthcare, reproductive health work situations that I've had. So um, I think it's more of a layering of ideas and challenging existing structures that I've seen throughout the pelvic and reproductive health world that have sort of coalesced into the work that I'm doing today. Yeah.
1: How did the collective, well, well, first off, what, what's the right terminology for the collective? Should I call you guys the collective?
2: So we still are organized around a collective model and we used to be known as the Knoxville Abortion Doula Collective. Um, but now we're called the Mountain Access Brigade that just sort of better describes um, a little bit more of our mission, the service area that we're, that we're providing for right now. So Basically, we operate a support line to ensure that people seeking abortion have access to practical, emotional, logistical, and financial support. And the volunteers are trained as, you might call it like a digital abortion doula or an abortion support person. In reality, it's a mix of a social worker, a travel agent, and a counselor. (laughs) So all three in one, it's pretty great to have that person on the phone with you. We began with the idea of creating an encrypted communications platform that combines a call center ticketing system, a hotline, and a volunteer scheduling system in one. Um, And our focus on technology and security really differentiates us from a lot of similar organizations like advocacy groups and abortion funds, because our primary goal is to keep our clients and volunteers safe by ensuring that no one can see each other's phone numbers or identifying information. Mm-hmm. We can really confidently say that everyone's information is going to be kept confidential. Most, much of our work is sort of done remotely, but we also offer in-person trainings and educational opportunities and, of course, things like condoms, emergency contraception, pregnancy tests, and things like that.
1: And why? Because I, I do feel like the amount of security that you have built tech-wise is unique. Why was that such a high priority?
2: It's a question that I wish I had a simple answer to. (laughs) It seems like the only way that we could possibly do it. Like when you recognize a need and a gap that needs to be filled and you understand that you're able to build the resources and share information to fill that gap, the number one priority that you have to have before you even, you know, open the front door is to ensure that people are safe. You know, in my state um, we are, I think we're tied with Georgia, um for the most hate groups per state. Mm. There are loads of people, you know, they might be antis, they might be third party actors, the government doesn't matter. There's just a lot of people that could really make trouble for people who are seeking abortion, whether that looks like in clinic access or out of clinic access. And it's really, really crucial that we're able to say um, what you're going to encounter is support that you can trust. And it's also done in such a way that, it won't endanger you. Mm -hmm. And that's equally important for our volunteers, right? Because they're um, just as as much in this environment right now of of abortion stigma and um, and anti-abortion violence as the people who are seeking abortions. And sometimes um, people who volunteer for us are also people who have been able to access our services. And so it's not like these are two distinct people. We live mm-hmm. in our community and we want to protect everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. It sounds like within your community, you are uh, visible to the extent that you <laughs> you can be. Um, but who predominantly do you serve? Are there any patterns in terms of the, the folks who are reaching out to you for support?
2: Sure. So geographically, our service area is nominally central Appalachia. Most of our clients are primarily in Tennessee, Southwest Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, North Carolina. Sort of, I'm picturing like a kind of a nebulous circle that hovers yeah. over, uh, over that region. Um, we also provide support for people in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi in tandem with our partner organizations, but we get questions from people All over the United States, and we've had some international clients as well. So outside of our service area, those interactions usually look like just finding the right referrals and resources to connect people to. Mm. We're experts at figuring out where people need to go for help, and we're always there for people to come back to for emotional support. So even if people are contacting us from outside of the country or from a a random state that's in a different time zone, there's something that we can probably do for them. We've also had a lot of clients who end up using us for support for things like birth control and emergency contraception, because they know they can get individualized answers and assistance within a matter of hours. Mm. So most people find us, there's a combination of ways. We have a a, a pretty robust social media presence for a small all-volunteer grassroots group. It's very salty, <laughs> so we're not <laughs> we're not trying to be, you know, super polished about our messaging. We're, we're really mm-hmm. down to earth. Like we're, we're rooted in our, in our community. And, um, Appalachia has a long tradition of just being a little Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, we also work with different clinics and advocacy groups and funds so that, uh, folks are aware of our services and aware that they can make referrals to us. And we, we get a lot of contact from people who have just sort of somehow heard through the abortion grapevine. So I yeah. think one of the things that is most interesting that maybe folks don't know is how small of, um, small of a network it is, especially here in the South of people who are providing support for clients and who are doing activism and work around abortion access. And so, um, it's very empowering to be able to work with different organizations then figure out how to um, take care of a client and, and figure out how to get people the resources they need. So sort of a combination that people find us. But mm-hmm. the running theme that I find with many of our clients are people who have incredibly complex issues that they're facing. So it's not just the run of the mill. This is an extremely hard procedure to access because of the laws preventing um easy access or the money or the you know, you can't use your health insurance for it, or the distance, or whatever it might be. It's also things like um people who are facing intimate partner violence or mm-hmm. people who have unstable housing or people who have complicated healthcare issues or there are issues about um their work or their childcare. Things that are extremely complicated that um make it even more difficult for people to be able to access in clinic care when using the same routes and avenues that most people would use. Um, mm-hmm. So uh it tends to be folks who are sort of hitting their head against the wall and, yeah. and really need a last resort. And that's so painful sometimes because if they'd found us for their first resort, we'd be like, listen, sis, we got you. (laughs) we're going to sort this out. Um, so, so I see a lot of that of people who are just in a really complex situation.
1: Yeah. In terms of clinic support versus folks who are choosing to self-manage, are you finding that you are supporting both? Does it lean one way or the other? And do you have a stance on, on SMA as a collective?
2: So we, as an organization, don't provide abortions or abortion pills, but we're really frank that we can help people connect to the resources they need. So for example, the Plan C report card maintains a running list of overseas pharmacies and they're kind of graded by quality and price and shipping time and a few other factors. And there are instructions online that can assist people in taking the medication safely, but there are also plenty of recipes and instructions that are not best practices. So our role, just like we would help people navigate how to get to a clinic and figure out the funding and figure out which clinic to go to and how the laws work, our role is to ensure the information that people have access to is factual and safe. But there are so many other factors to address that can really only be managed by someone who knows your area and knows your background. Mm-hmm. So that's why regional support lines and, and local groups are really, really important. Um, so for example, if you need to transfer to a hospital, you'll need to know which hospital to go to. Yep. And you'll need to know if it's a Catholic hospital because they're going to send people home in the middle of a miscarriage hemorrhaging. They don't do miscarriage management. It's against a religious practice. Mm-hmm. And because self-managed abortion is criminalized in our region, folks need to know what phrases to say and what to avoid. And they need to know that their online search histories can be used against them and yep. be supported in using encrypted apps. And all these sorts of things. So over and above all the issues of accessing the medication and the instructions and ensuring they're legally safe, people who self their abortions need emotional support, someone to kind of walk them through the, the physical and the psychological aspects of their procedure. And mm-hmm. that sort of assistance is given at a very cursory level in clinics if someone's doing an in-clinic abortion. And it's often given very poorly, especially for people who are at the margins of care. But in a situation where you're contacting a doula or an abortion support person, that's the primary goal of that individual's training. And it makes all the difference. So we see people who are kind of connecting the dots on their own, like, oh, these are folks who are going to be able to give me the information that I need. We're also pretty pretty upfront about it in our social media presence. Um, I may have mentioned that we have these amazing t-shirts that you can buy from our bonfire site that (gasps) just have the instructions on the background like here's (laughs) how you take your medication Mm -hmm. because it shouldn't be gatekept and the idea that that Mm -hmm. you know only doctors have the knowledge to to be able to guide you through this procedure is a fallacy we know that in other countries in other areas people are doing this safely and effectively on their own and so I think what it really boils down to is just what an individual's preference and need is some people have Uh, medical reasons that they need to access in clinic care, or that it would not be a good idea for them to self-manage their abortion. There are tons of legal reasons that that might be the case as well. It's really just about helping someone navigate what options is going to work for them.
1: Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned that there's an educator component to giving trainings around autonomous pelvic care. How is that included in the support that you offer your clients?
2: So I think it sort of starts with the idea that the doula model of care is really crucial in keeping people safe. Um Would you be able to
1: explain what that is?
2: So a doula is traditionally a non-medical support person who uh provides more of a wraparound approach to care. And it's most commonly associated with um birth and labor and postpartum, but full-spectrum doulas are, uh, it's a movement of support that's, that's been developing since the 2000s and mid 2000s. Uh, and the idea is that people need an advocate and someone to lean on a shoulder to cry on for a variety of different life changes that could be the death of a, of a beloved family member. It could be a miscarriage. It could be a surgery or it could be an abortion. There's many different things that, that folks might might need a doula for and so it's basically someone who can kind of be there when you need someone to assist you who's not your doctor or not your you know your medical provider Mm -hmm. Um, so many people who go through doula training might have a background in medical care but that isn't their primary function their primary function is to ensure that all the pieces are there and that someone can make an educated Autonomous choice. Um, mm-hmm. without, without doulas, we see that people are often coerced into procedures or experience outcomes that are really deleterious to their health. And so this is true in the birth world and it's also true, um, in abortion access. So, um, autonomous pelvic care kind of centers on the idea that that community support person is really key in yeah. ensuring good outcomes. Um, and it doesn't have to be a doula. Some people are actually um, not comfortable with that term. So it just sort of centers the idea of, of wraparound care, wraparound support. Um, so autonomous public care is, is a branch of the Mountain Access Brigade, um, the, the relaunch in April, will see this work kind of become two sibling organizations. Mm -hmm. And it developed as an educational modality that encompassed my specific approach to teaching and encouraging people to basically end run the healthcare system. So after years of working within that culture and training in midwifery and medical anthropology, I believe that people should know the inside tips to be able to Mm -hmm. survive, um, our current system. So we call it radical care for radicals because the shift that we need and how we think of our ability and our history needs to be dramatic. It needs to yeah. be really radical. All of the workshops are train the trainer. Everything that people do, all the materials they get, the ideas that they will go out and be able to spread the information in their own communities. The goal is to develop a network of community care providers for a wide range of pelvic and reproductive health care. The sort of neighborhood or local person who has the answers for your common symptoms and infections, your questions, your needs, things like that. So not too long Mm -hmm. ago, there was a village woman who was assisting with this sort of type of need and you may have bartered with her, you may have worked Mm -hmm. on a payment system with her, and with advances in technology and in information access and communication, we can create a new paradigm of this very ancient role of a community provider. This person can help you determine if your discomfort or your discharge is something that you can take care of at home with mm. herbs or over-the-counter remedies, or if you need to go through the process of seeking in-clinic care. And if so, how to navigate that and how to advocate for yourself. Mm. Um, so I think that's a that's a really key part of this is to recognize that uh this sort of stands adjacent to biomedical care sometimes you will need to to go to a doctor there are many times where you do not need to go to a doctor and that information that we have on how to take care of ourselves without going to the doctor has largely been lost and it's a really sad fact that when Roe was decided in 1973 we lost the momentum that had been building mostly among white women but also in communities of color around taking care back into our hands like Mm -hmm. we've been doing menstrual extraction. People were learning how to look at their own cervixes. Folks were helping each other with pelvic and reproductive care. And once Roe was passed, there was a sense that we were going to be safe. We didn't need to train ourselves for abortion mm-hmm. care because it was legal now. Mm-hmm. And we could kind of rest. The issue with that is that what the state gives you, it can take away. And now we're seeing that reality play out. So mm-hmm. You know, never more so than these state governors who are opportunistically seizing on the COVID-19 panic mm-hmm. to unconstitutionally repress access by just shutting clinics down on their own state as if abortion isn't essential healthcare or as if people can just wait a few weeks or months. Like right. it's not a knee replacement. It's, it's a growing problem. (laughs) Um, And so this is where Autonomous Pelvic Care comes in. You need to know who to turn to, who can give you answers, who's got the resources Mm -hmm. to assist you. The government does not care about us and we only have each other. And that's what Autonomous Pelvic Care addresses. So Mm -hmm. the um, exciting part about that is that we're really grateful to have received grant money this year to train community providers in a comprehensive program called Mountain Roots Folk Roots, and that's in the Carolinas and in Mississippi. My hope is that Mm -hmm. that programming can spread out in our in our region, like ripples, because we are not going to see forced birthers or anti-choice politicians and lobbying groups just sort of sit back on their hands and say, okay, our work is done. We're going to see them pushing harder and harder and harder, and we're going to need to figure out ways to take care of each other. Yeah.
1: Can you get more into the weeds on your tech platform and how it could allow for that type of digital protection?
2: Sure. So I think it's always... Um, a balance of just managing risk. There are people who would be able to get the word out about their, you know, community provision of abortion care a lot better if they were more upfront about their identities. And in some states and some locations, yeah. they can be, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, in other places, the need for their protection and their clients' protection is at the forefront of people's minds. And for many people who would otherwise offer community provision of abortion care or access that care the surveillance and the safety is at the forefront of their minds and so when i mentioned before we've got this proprietary communications platform that's formed the core of our approach to client services and keeping volunteers safe and we are grateful to have received grants from inroads and support from the digital defense fund and we're about to launch version two of our software and we call our software katie as well so everybody's katie yeah. um This will be free open source software and the training materials for how to, for how organizations can intake clients and schedule shifts and text and call and take notes and so on will be freely available. Mm. That's really exciting because it's important to us um, as members of, you know, mutual aid communities and, and as people who have been working in organizing and activism for a long time, we recognize that um, the software and the apps that are available to people that your organization can actually afford do not protect you. Right. And if they protect you, you can't afford them. So Mm. Katie replaces the the Google suite services and the other project management apps that many abortion funds and advocacy groups are currently using. Mm. Um, And they're just not safe for clients or users. And they're certainly not secure enough to communicate about self-managed abortion. Um, The exciting thing about Katie is that she's suitable for a variety of applications. So mutual aid groups, refugee and asylee organizations, the LGBTQIA plus community, sex workers, all these different groups, any place where folks need an encrypted way to receive and make calls and texts, make notes, organize actions for incoming client needs, schedule shifts, these sort of things. So this technology is really remarkable and there's nothing else like it right now. And we're super proud that we've developed this as an all-volunteer grassroots groups group because I think a lot of people, don't understand the innovation that takes place in Appalachia and how deep our resistance goes. Um, mm-hmm. And having said that, you know, anytime that people are using any technology to participate in criminalized or illegal activities, they are taking on some risk. And yeah. I think that there are certainly providers of community abortion care who are currently using some apps that are more secure than others. I think that it's really important for us to think about. You know, who, who's the, the most targeted by the laws that both restrict access to in-clinic abortion care and the ones that focus on criminalizing self-managed abortion? And it's, it's people who are already super marginalized. So mostly Black, Brown, and Indigenous women, people who are experiencing poverty or unstable housing, um, queer and trans people. These are the folks that we really have to think about protecting and These people tend to be both clients and providers. And so it makes sense that when we're building a secure solution or a communications platform, we're trying to make it as safe as possible for those that need to be protected the most.
1: How would folks find Katie? Will she... I know you said it's open access.
2: Yeah, the documentation um, will be available and people... Um, who have a GitLab account would be able Mm -hmm. to go in and find everything and have the instructions on how to stand up their own version. They would also have the training manual instructions for how to ensure that their users, their volunteers or their staff or whatever can operate the system. The Mm -hmm. thing that people will need to have, which is something that we're trying to address right now with a growing network of volunteer developers is they'll need a programmer to sysadmin their, their own version of it. So. Basically, you'll need an in-house geek to help you get it set up. Um, so that's something that we're also partnering with mutual aid organizations and, and other groups to try to find folks who may be interested in doing that system administration mm-hmm. work. It is very, very rare for an abortion advocacy group to have an in-house developer. We're extremely mm-hmm. privileged that when we began this organization, there were about four different um, programmers who really, really believed in our mission and supported our work and, and graciously volunteered their time to get the mm-hmm. system built. Mm-hmm. Um, so without that, we really wouldn't be here. And it is fantastic that we're able to do it. And so it makes sense that we need to pass on that privilege by making yep. this um, available to everyone.
1: Yeah. You brought up COVID and the times that we are in currently. Has anything changed, both in terms of any inbounds that you've received? I know that you mentioned that the governor is doing some stuff. Uh, would you be able to, to speak to kind of what the reality looks like now and then what you think will change in the coming weeks and months in terms of abortion access and, and the help that's going to be required?
2: Sure. So I kind of think of it like the Star Trek when Captain Picard gets in his seat and he's like, status report, like every morning, there's some yeah, yeah. new bananas, ridiculous situation that yeah. we have to, you know, face and, and strategically respond to. We have to be really agile. Um, and there's a certain amount of burnout that can yeah. occur when you're just reacting to things. So we have been preparing for this eventuality, not just our organization, but our network of partner groups in the South for a very long time. So in a yeah. sense, I kind of feel like we were born for this and yeah. I'm not panicking over this. Um, maybe it's just that it hasn't really hit me hard enough, but yeah. also things can change so quickly that I almost feel like it's not worth getting worked up over at this point. Mm. So last week there was a situation in Texas where it was like I had whiplash First, the governor was like, you can't do abortion. Then the courts were like, you can. And then by the evening, it was like, no, you can't. And literally, if, you know, you're just going to get spun round if you're focusing on the here and now. Mm. So we're trying to just take this in stride as part of our strategic plan that we've had, knowing that the South was, was going to be the place where abortion access fell, um, not only first and the quickest, but also the most catastrophically because of the, um, healthcare access in general that's just so dismal in our region. So that's, that's part of it right now. And I think whether the governors of the states that are trying to shut down abortion under the guise of coronavirus safety, are successful or not, doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is their interior goal, which will be very effective, is that people will think that abortion is no longer legal. Yeah. That is already the case with the trap laws. The waiting periods and the clinic um, closures and the hospital bidding privileges and all these different laws that were put in place have already made people in the past five to ten years Question. Oh, is this actually legal? Can I come and do this? And so then we're having this, you know, panic on the news media about, um, abortion clinics being closed because of COVID-19. And it's, it will have the effect that they hope it has, which is that people yeah. will stay home and, and remain pregnant. So I think what that's going to look like for us is, again, just helping people navigate what the best option looks like for them. And, um, and for groups who are Interested in the legislative side of things, pushing for the decriminalization of self-managed abortion yeah. so that pregnant people and those who help them aren't punished is really essential, especially because you know those laws are targeting the people who are already most vulnerable to being exploited by our prison system. It's the same population that is most at risk for adverse outcomes in childbirth yeah. with staggering discrepancies in maternal and fetal mortality morbidity, so essentially, poor brown black and indigenous women and they're caught between a rock and a hard place and any future that we build towards needs to center their voices and their needs so for many people self-managed abortion may absolutely be the best choice um, and we we need to figure out what that looks like in a landscape where
1: um, everything is stacked against them. You mentioned earlier the LGBTQIA plus community would you say that similar hurdles are being faced by folks who identify as queer and trans?
2: So it's an incredibly complex issue in our region. There's both a rich culture of queer liberation and resistance in Appalachia in the South. There's also an equally dark history of oppression and stigma and an often very violent oppression. So this area is known as the Bible Belt. It just means that there are numerous cultural the critical religious factors that influence someone's ability to come out and live safely as a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm-hmm. And we also have the Mountain Access Brigade is a majority queer organization. We use that term to encompass a number of different identities, but our members have identified as gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer, and ace. Um, so we deeply understand the barriers that queer people face in our region simply to be alive. Just... You know, just to like wake up and and have a, a safe life and survive, let alone thrive. Mm-hmm. Members in our community may be more likely to live in poverty or have no health care, live in unsafe relationships, um, have unstable housing or a lack of transportation, a lack of comprehensive sex education, mm-hmm. so many things. And so once you layer abortion access onto those challenges, we're looking at problems that may seem almost insurmountable. And there is an incredible allostatic load taking place. Mm-hmm. Navigating these crises can just seem really overwhelming without the right support. So we then, as if that wasn't enough, have the issue of doctors and clinicians being untrained and uneducated about trans bodies and queer relationships and yeah. so on. Even, even providers that are positioning themselves as being culturally competent for queer and trans care are not necessarily culturally competent for queer and trans care and so members of this community need specialized screening and support and skills and referrals and the physical experience of visiting an abortion provider can also be incredibly triggering or traumatizing Mm -hmm. for trans and queer people so like you can probably imagine a, a trans man who's been on gender forming hormone therapy long enough to present as a cis man may feel extremely uncomfortable sitting in a room full of women who might see him as an interloper and he's surrounded by these pink pamphlets and this Mm -hmm. language that isn't inclusive of his lived experiences and his healthcare needs and it's very awkward you know for I think everybody in that situation but especially when folks might need or might feel the need to sort of perform queerness or hide queerness just based on um, Mm -hmm. the reception that they're receiving and how fluent the staff is with care in this community so In places like the South, this is, this is extremely dismal where, um, there are so many factors that are influencing people's ability to get healthcare that's appropriate for them on a daily basis, not inside of a crisis situation. And then once we add the issues with abortion access, um, it, it can absolutely be something really challenging to navigate. So. Hmm. Once again, having that person who knows how to figure this system out, who's based in your community, who sounds mm-hmm. like you, who shared your experiences, maybe even grew up in the same town you grew up in, it's it's critical for um for people to have a successful um experience. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh we we've been ending all of our conversations this way, but if you had a megaphone and you had a whole bunch of folks all around you, you're on the top of the building, let's say, and you had one thing to say to them at this moment, one thing to, one message to share, what would it be?
2: I I cannot wait to hear some of the other answers (laughs) that people have been giving you. I'm so excited to listen to this podcast. And I'm wondering how many people are like, four pills in between your cheek and gum every three hours for 12 pills total. Like, I can't wait to hear the answers, but I I guess I would probably say that uh, we've been taught to dwell in fear and distrust of our own bodies, and we are incredibly capable. We don't need a doctor for most of what we visit the OBGYN for, and the state has no right to our bodies. Mm.
1: That sounds pretty good to me. Thanks for it's it's not it's not very succinct
2: <laughs> <laughs> megaphone people are like what what are they saying no I think um, because... I could definitely I could do the shout out for how people can get in touch with us please um, please 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 so our lines are going to be opening April 12th and okay. people can call or text us toll free at one eight five five eight 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 888 mab 8 that's M-A-B for Mountain Access Brigade One eight five five eight 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 MAB eight. Our website is mountainaccessbrigade.org and we're on Facebook and Instagram as Mountain Access Brigade.
1: Okay, and that's where we can find your salty content. (laughs) it will be fun. Um, Yes, thank you so 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 very much, and we'll. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. that's it for this episode we want to get these stories to folks who are looking for them if you know of anyone who wants to learn more about this topic a friend family member or colleague please share this episode with them our goal is to demystify this conversation and what that takes is talking about it head over to our website smapodcast.org to get the resources discussed in this interview as well as the transcript which we have in both Spanish and English. Thank you for listening and have a good one.